Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts. Please remember with each topic we discuss that your horse is an individual and you should seek professional advice before implementing any strategies. This week, Nancy and I are looking at a paper that is by M. Rorvang, B. Nelson, and A. McLean. And it's about the sensory abilities of horses and their importance for equitation science. So this is a literature review paper. So it's pulling together all the information. And I have to say, literature review papers are just so useful because it takes all the little bits that we learn from each individual paper and just puts it in essentially an easy to read one place. Everything you need is there. But the idea behind this literature review is to better understand, I suppose, the sensory abilities of horses and what these abilities then mean for behavior. And also to give us an idea of animal welfare and how an animal is coping with the conditions that it lives in. Yeah, um, I was really impressed with the vision and I think the tactile stimulation or the touch sense. Um, The other senses, smell and um, taste and all that, Um, hearing. I kind of already had a general overview on those, but the vision, the way they describe that humans have binocular vision of 120 degrees. So if you take your hands and put them at 180, so out each shoulder and you're at 180 degrees, and then you slowly bring them in to the point where you can see them pretty well, that is where you're at 120 degrees. Now for horses, they're half of that. They're 55 to 65 degrees of binocular vision. So that kind of changed my whole perception of how they perceive a jump course or anything that they rely on acuity are really, really specific Uh, focused vision. So um, that kind of uh, made me rethink on why jumps have to be constructed in a certain way to go along with that physiology of the horse. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting how they said horses have that red-green colorblindness. Because that's not really something that I had like pieced together before. I you know, knew the old saying about um, blue-eyed creams being colorblind or having, you know, reduced vision. But I didn't think that, you know, every horse can have this red-green colorblindness and then struggle to differentiate. So, I, I mean, we definitely had red and green trotting poles, like when I was growing up. <laughs> I'm sure they were the colors and on the poles. You know, they also said that if a jump was all dark colors or all light colors. The horses had trouble picking it up, but when they mixed a light and dark color, they were able to see it so much better to go over it. So maybe the red green ends up looking like a gray 
And they did say the blue, which makes so much sense because a blue tarp has always been a sensitivity issue with some horses. And then um, I thought the, what was it called, Kate? Um, Stereopsis was that that ability of depth perception and to perceive that three dimensions of a jump. And they could only get that input from both eyes within the binocular vision um, fields. And there you go with that 55 to 65 degree range again. So um, they recommended that um, you, you know, kind of use this as a guide for cross country jumps, stadium jumps, and also then in dressage when you do any type of riding behind the bit or when that nose is more towards the chest than perpendicular to the ground, that even obstructs vision to a certain degree. And I think like that is really useful information just Mm -hmm. in everyday riding. Like if you're planning um, some schooling work and you're putting jumps in, make sure you're actually like measuring that out sufficiently so the horse has enough time coming into the jump to be able to use that perception because if we create courses where they're taking tight turns into it they don't have the time for their brain to register how high or you know how far we need to actually make this and I thought the last point I had on vision was that uh, laterality and how their left eye seemed to be the dominant eye. So if you could to turn to their head slightly to the right, so they're able to really hone in with that left eye. And, you know, that's good to know. I knew there was laterality with the horse, but I didn't know it was to such a degree and always with that left eye. Yeah, that was. I think the one that really kind of stood out for me in this was, well, one of the ones was hearing. And I think it was because I love when you read something and you're like, oh, well, I never, I just never thought of that. And it's very straightforward. I mean, the fact that hearing obviously worsens with age. Yeah, it's something that we're so aware of in people, like even probably so aware of in companion animals. But do we really take into account that with horses? And what was really interesting to me about the hearing was horses can hear obviously a much higher frequency than humans can, but they can't hear as low as humans can. So I think the lower end of what a horse can hear is 50 decibels as it measures in. Maybe I'm using the wrong. I think it was um, 50 hertz. Hertz, that was it. Yeah, and and humans can go lower at 20 hertz. Yeah. They can hear 30 hertz lower than a horse. That surprised me as well. So the fact that humans can hear things that, like, when you're riding your horse, you can hear things that the horse actually can't hear. Whereas I always thought, you know, they're so aware, like, they have far superior hearing and can definitely pick up sounds higher but to know that they actually can't pick up those lower sounds is really interesting. And then you mentioned that high frequency. Um, now that they measured in kilohertz and they can go to 33 
at the high level where humans can only go 20. And Kate, you were telling me before we started recording about the, um, oh, what is it like, rodent um, yes, inhibitor? The, um, oh, what's the name? The, uh, it's ultrasonic electronic pest repellers. That is, the, I knew, <laughs> I wrote it down because I was like, I want to make sure I say this right. Because this is something I have thought about a lot when I hear people using these and they have cats or dogs in their house. And I have to look up, you know, what range of hertz cats and dogs can hear. But I always did think, you know, is that detrimental to them? Because these repellers, so it's when you plug the box into your wall and it emits a really high frequency sound that we can't hear and it repels rodents so they say i i mean i've used them in scotland um bit of a mouse problem in one or two properties i've lived in and i don't really know how effective they were but maybe i just bought a cheap one but whether it does make that impact on dogs and cats i always kind of have that in the back of my mind and then they said in this that if the frequency is at a certain range it will affect horses and it's interesting then. So, you know, people who live on farms probably do use these a bit more. If you want a more natural way, you know, you don't want to be putting down pesticides or, you know, rat poison on your farm, then you might be utilizing these and just consider what the reach is. Does it does it actually reach out to the paddock? Is it more centralized and just covers your house? It depends on the power. Um, of the box as well but definitely something to keep in the back of your mind yeah and especially mm -hmm. if you place it in a barn you know is it going to disrupt the peacefulness and the ability for the horses to rest with the output the high frequency output and um, I was one more point I had on hearing was I didn't realize that horses tend to have a right ear preference for hearing acuity. So I'm gonna have to test that because you always can see how they turn the ear towards the noise or towards you. I'm gonna have to see if I get more right ear, you know, turning than left ear, but um, they said it's because of the left hemispheric preference that seems to be prevalent in horses. Yeah. The interesting thing, too, about hearing, which ties into that episode we did on playing music for horses. Yeah. yeah. The effect on behavior. So within this study, they mentioned another study that says instrumental guitar music, also very positive for horses, that and classical. But in that study, they used instrumental guitar music with Arabian racehorses. And they played it for about five hours a day for a period between one and three months. But they found that after about three months of playing it for five hours every day, the positive effect diminished. So it was interesting. It's like the horses just became habituated to it and didn't necessarily get the enjoyment out of it before. But they did say that the positive effects of playing music is greater if you're playing the music for three hours a day or more. Whereas if you're just playing it for an hour a day, they didn't see the same kind of results from that, which I thought was kind of cool. So, you know, having music on all day in the barn isn't detrimental to them, but they found that they think one of the big reasons it has such a positive effect 
is it kind of like hides or masks sounds that are disruptive to horses or that horses will naturally be aversive to so noises from machinery or you know slamming barn doors or things like that that are seen to be stressful the music can mask that as well so definitely keep up the music um, and you can add instrumental guitar to your Spotify list. Yeah. And they said um, the funnel shape of the ear provided acoustic pressure gain of 10 to 20 decibels. So remember that, that not too loud because what we're hearing, the horse is hearing at 10 to 20 decibels more. So mm-hmm. I thought that was my answer why I don't need to blare the music. And do you think, Nancy, like, will you have noticed in having horses over the years that they become like desensitized or they get a degree of deafness? Um, you know, I don't I don't play it except when I'm riding or when I'm grooming them and I mix it up between genres. Um, I don't think, I think because I don't, it's not playing all the time, they don't get desensitized to it, but definitely the volume makes a difference and the type of music I choose. I wonder too, as well, like what the, you know, music will have an effect, but kind of what the effect of routine is, because we know, like, especially in the last year, people say how important routine is to us as humans. We know it's important for animals, like routine is kind of what gives us structure and it helps alleviate anxieties. So I, I always think with like little things like this, when you're doing that kind of research, is it necessarily the music or is it the routine? Like you go into your barn every day and your horses know like you're coming in, you're putting on the music. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And it's almost that has a calming effect because it's predictable. I think you're right, Kate, because they're such pattern oriented animals. And the one thing I try to do is to always follow the same pattern because then they know what to expect. So I am a creature of habit because I know they are. And so when it's time for grooming, I tend to pick a more mellow music. It, it makes me relax. And then uh, when I'm riding, I do a mellow music for warm up and then a more lively music for trot canner and then another mellow or slow for a cool down and it's always a pattern. And I always think most of training horses is just realizing establish a pattern and make it re you know, relaxing and then make it predictable. And make it something that is realistic for you to keep up as well. Yeah. You know, don't feel like you have to create a routine of, you know, an Olympic riding school and you just can't maintain it yeah and I put a lot of talk on the radio because I can tell they're not as relaxed with the talk I try to put a cd on that doesn't have anything in between or make a playlist and and play that but um, I know talking and too loud of music is definitely something at least my horses don't tend to benefit from 
I find that I've been doing that a little bit with my rescue dog who is, she's just so fearful, but I've been putting on um, particularly Joe Rogan's podcast where he's interviewing other men because she is more wary of men. Not that I, not that I necessarily think anything happened to her. I think she just had really poor socialization. We know that for a fact as a puppy. And then um, we know from like studies we've done in horses that they can find like the way men approach can be a little bit too confident for them and they can find that aversive and their voices have a different um, tone sometimes than women's. But I've been kind of using that as a way to desensitize her a little bit because they laugh and they joke and it's loud and it's kind of boisterous. So putting that on and giving her lots of treats to try and try and prepare her for a post-COVID world yeah. where she's going to be out and about more talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and are we done with hearing? Because smell, we kind of covered in that episode when they could smell fear or happiness. Remember that one? Yes. Such and, a good one. And this went right along with that research that they knew horses. First off, each horse has their own individual odor. So, and that's no surprise because aren't dogs pretty much the same way? I think so. Even people, yep. they've, yeah. they've proven that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um, you, they, this research talked about odorant conditioning. And I had never really thought of that before that you can take an odor that you know your horse finds pleasant and bridge that to an aversive event. So like clipping, if you have that odor around that you know is pleasant to your horse while you're introducing to the clippers, they tend to have a much lower heart rate during acclimation to the to the clippers so I had never thought about using odors versus food for reinforcement so I found that quite interesting and I think animals really are tuned into that because you know lactating um, mammals produce a certain type of pheromone so like when the foal is suckling or when a kitten or a puppy is suckling this pheromone makes them feel safe because you know they're they're having all their needs met in that moment as like a young kind of vulnerable Mm -hmm. um animal so we've used that a lot in dogs and cats like the creating of these pheromone sprays to cause relaxation but a spray that you can use that doesn't use pheromones but has amazing relaxation effects is called pet remedy And you can use that on dogs, cats, horses, humans, birds, you name it, reptiles. Like this is an amazing spray that I used so often in practice, particularly with cats, because they would come in very stressful. Um, We use it a lot of the time at rodents as well and rabbits and small furries is what we term them. But it's really impressive. You know, some animals are more perceptive to it than others. But spraying it on your hands and letting your horse smell your hands is a great way to relax them. And it relaxes you. I would say it's not the most pleasant smell for people, in my opinion. I think it's like 
to me, a little bit of a mix of licorice and grass, which the grass I'm okay with, but I'm not a licorice fan. (laughs) But you get used to it. And if anyone is looking for a spray, like I, I wholeheartedly recommend that one pet remedy. It's brilliant. I'll list that on our homepage uh, for anyone that, you know, is interested in that um, because it, it sometimes like a lot of times old time horsemen always say, if you really want to try and use a pheromone to calm a horse, um, you can get kind of the sweat that accumulates between a mare's udders and put that around their nose yeah that may help with their anxiety because it reminds them from nursing and that's a pleasant memory I have never tried that but I remember uh, you know one of the old timers told me about that and I thought well there may be something to that but this study said that each horse has an individual odor I would like to know further if there are stronger odors in dark horses, because at one time someone had told me that black horses have a stronger odor than, say, a palomino or a chestnut. And I have never been able to find research to corroborate that. I think it's like definitely a possibility that there's a difference between um different colored horses because I mean in this study as well they pointed out that chestnut horses just seem to be more you know I was going to say highly strong but that's probably not fair on them (laughs) more more perceptible on every scale of using their senses I I was not surprised with that having a chestnut mare I mean they said they're just they have greater skin sensitivity so sometimes on a windy day your horse or your chestnut may be reacting to the tactile stimulation of the wind as well as the smells, um, the sight where it makes them feel like something is running by them and they've got to catch up. So they're just heightened in every one of these senses. And I didn't find that a surprise, but I didn't know there was any scientific evidence behind it. I think like on the tactile point, that was really interesting to me because, again, it's just when they point out some of the obvious things like we expect horses to become desensitized to the girth, which is in the exact same area that we want them to be extremely sensitized to our leg aids. Yeah. And we expect them to ignore the girth, but not to ignore our legs. So, you know, I never had thought of that before. And then also, I thought it was interesting that for future research, they want to map out the areas of the skin and be able to tell us which or more, which areas are the most sensitive. So they know the muzzle, the neck, the withers, um, the coronets, the shoulders, the lower flank, and the rear of the pastern. But they want to eventually be able to map out that sensitivity and then you have to realize a chestnut will be so much more sensitive in those areas I think that's just 
fascinating like if they managed to do that it would be so useful because even when they pointed out in this you know like how horses react so sensitively to flies like if you're riding your horse and you're out hacking and a horse fly is biting them like you know about it the minute it starts they're so agitated and then I just thought that's kind of to put my perspective in place of how we probably are rougher with our aids than we realize just because it's an animal that's bigger than us. We're probably like, if they're not responding to a leg aid we're giving them, we're going to give it harder. Not that we kick, but, you know, if they can respond so lightly to something like a fly biting them, then we have to consider their behaviors to why they're not responding to a leg aid and take into account all of these perceptions. Are they picking up something that we're not and we're actually trying to drive them forward into an area that they're unsure of or they might be you know even afraid that there's something lurking in the distance yeah and one thing that i actually tested is they talk about left eye laterality in mutual grooming and i have to say every time my horses are grooming one another it is left eye to left eye Oh, I did not ever pick up on that until this paper mentioned that. And so when they're standing close to one another to be able to guard against biting flies. So head to tail, that usually is our tail to head, head to tail. It's always left eye to left eye. And I can I can confirm that because I never noticed it before. But this paper was spot on for that. My horses are always left eye to left eye. That's so interesting. Yeah. And then I guess they switch the head to tail positioning to continue grooming on that other side, you know, because you'll see them go underneath the necks or whatever, and you'll find they won't groom near as long as they do the left eye to left eye. So I'm going to continue to watch it. And if I find a different pattern, I'll let everyone know. But um, I was, you know, so much uh, into this with the tactile sensitivity declines with age. So especially horses over 20 years old, they won't be nearly as responsive to um, tactile sensitivity. So just like hearing declines, so does their ability to feel or to be sensitive um, on their skin. And that kind of is a training welfare issue if you use a lot of pressure or touch to train. I think the final sentence in this study just summed it up really nicely. It says, knowing how horses perceive their surroundings will help improve awareness of what they find aversive or pleasant and will enable more efficient, welfare-friendly training and handling techniques, as well as improving human safety. And it's definitely opened my eyes to a couple of ways that we can improve training and handling. Um, It'd be interesting to see, you know, if anyone has have made any of these changes already with their horses or if they've noticed that themselves and if you want to read the paper it is open source so you can have a read and it is an easy read I really recommend anyone who's interested 
to um, look it up for sure. But you can always send us in a voice message or get in contact and let us know what your thoughts are. Yeah, and they even said that there's a season and circadian rhythm within horses and that sometimes training at night is not the best time to train because they follow the 24-hour light cycle so that they consider that, you know, horses may train better during the daylight than they do at nighttime, especially in the winter when the days are um, shorter. And anyway, I felt that was interesting because how many times do we race horses at night? I know. I thought particularly for that industry, like you see it so often. Yeah. And I have had horses thinking back that if you get a late race and I'm talking like 10 p.m. at night, 1030 at night, you know, are there horses that I could go back and look that that was not their best time of day to be racing? And I never, ever thought about tracking that. And then you might have some that run much better during an afternoon racing session. So that was really the interesting part. And then the only other thing I would add is um, they did say there's an individuality uh, part of this that deals with temperament. And so you take that into account as well as to the degree of this perception of these five senses. And you know what, Kate, we forgot taste. And the only I had to say about taste I mean, there were only five, but we managed to forget one. (laughs) Um, Horses detect four out of five taste components. They can detect sweet, sour, salty, and bitter, but they so far cannot take that savory taste, or it's called umami. And it's kind of what we can pick up glutamates and nucleotides and those types of food additives that that has not been discovered yet that a horse can actually decipher that taste so uh, but sweet sour salty and bitter and I bet that's why horses can pick up butte in the feed because it's bitter and then they don't eat it and so I used to um I've seen this old timer, to use your phrase, Nancy, because I think it's a nice one. <laughs> <No. laughs> I've seen him and it was always his practice to spit in his hand and like offer it to the horse. And the horses used to like come straight over and just lick his hand every time. And I remember as a kid being like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> but I wonder what that was because they all bonded with him over it. That's crazy. I've never heard of that. I've heard of a, I have a horse that will lick your hands and your arms. And I always felt like he was tasting the salt. Yeah. But I've never done that before. And I don't think I will do that. But (laughs) Did, did I tell you about that time my mare did that to me? She likes to lick your hands. And it was during, it was in 2010 when we had the worst snowfall, the beast from the east, they were calling it. And, and like, we would never have had that heavy of snowfall in Ireland. And I was going up to her like four or five times a day trying to 
get the impacted snow out of her hooves. And I went up to her like the last time at night and I let her lick my hand. And she was just looking away for ages. And then I went to leave the field and I put my hand on the metal bar to open the gate and all oh, my hands stuck to it because it was so cold <laughs> that's when it's it was cold. so sore to get it off the gate I remember being like I'm an idiot well at least it wasn't your tongue taking, yeah. taking that from the Christmas story you know but um, yeah. I I will add that uh, see when it comes to taste uh, in the a horse's diet, there's taste, odor, and nutrients. And taste is the driver for the horse diet choices. And we all kind of knew that from weeds they stay away from. But they do have those taste buds that they think may work with smell, but not to the degree that our smell in the human uh, kind of drives our taste buds. They don't know if that really happens in horses or not. So anyway, there you go. That's the five uh, senses and little characteristics from each one that pertains solely to the horse. It's been an interesting one. And thanks for joining, Nancy. We'll chat next week. If anyone has any recommendations, send them our way. Yep, this was a fun one. And thank you so much. So we'll see everybody next week. Take care. Okay, bye bye.